and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Why is there a seagull flying around? Who sent the seagull? Before we get on to our lovely guest, I want to introduce the other panelists on the podcast today. Besides me, we have Eric Berry. You know, you mentioned seagull and that's, there's like the funniest video, the seagull video. If you haven't watched it, you got to watch it. Sorry. Now I'm like giggling because I see how it is singing about seagulls. Is that, Sorry, is I, that I, I have that in my head as well. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, is that so your I literally laughed out loud and probably shed a little bit of tears when he talked about the little baby stick under the log. <laughs> we'll drop that in the show notes, everyone. Alyssa Wright is also here. We heard Alyssa. Alyssa, how are you? Hi. Hello. Pleasure to be here. And Justin Dorfman. Hello. And if you Google a seagull, the onion, that's another good one. Clearly, I haven't seen any of these. I'm really, really <laughs> out of the loop. Seagull loop. <laughs> Yeah, no, we love seagull stuff, so. Sorry, that, listeners, was our guest today. So we are incredibly privileged to have Deb Nicholson on today. Deb is the Interim General Manager, Interim Executive Director, the wearer of many hats, whatever you want to call it, at the OSI, the Open Source Initiative. We've had OSI people on the show before. We had Patrick and Josh Simmons before, and it's really exciting to have Deb as well. She's currently filling a lot of the roles that are basically what... The day-to-day that's happening at the OSI. She's also the founder of the Seattle GNU Linux conference called... One of several founders, not like... Thank you. (laughs) One of several founders, very good at community and making sure that due praise is given where it's needed. I believe that is called Seagull, right? Yeah, we'd like to call it Seagull. It's a backronym, a shameless backronym. Linguistics and birds. Uh, who could this possibly interest? Certainly not this guy. I love that. Thank you so much. Can you tell us a bit about how you founded Seagull? What happened there? So I live in the Boston area and I went probably now like 15 years ago to the Linux Fest Northwest, which is up in Bellingham, Washington. It's this very tiny, cute town. And they have this amazing event they've been doing for a long time at the Bellingham Technical College. So like the first year I flew directly to Bellingham, which involves flying to Seattle and then taking like a 20 minute flight where like basically the staff on the plane just does like a hilarious like stand up routine the whole time because they're not going to give you any food or drink because the flight's too short. And then I met all these amazing folks from Seattle and they're like, oh, cool. So how long are you staying in Seattle after the event? I'm like, oh, no, I'm just flying back to Boston. And they're like, oh, because you've been to Seattle before. And I'm like, and they're like wait, you've been to Bellingham now, but you've never been to Seattle. So they insisted next year I come to Seattle, we drive up together. So we started doing that on those car rides. It was like on the way home, where I was like, it's so weird that there's nothing like this in Seattle. And they said, well, we could find a venue and get donations for coffee and all of that stuff. But we don't know anyone like on the national kind of speaking circuit that could help us promote and get speakers. And I'm like, oh, I could do that. So I I volunteered myself to help run a event in Seattle. It's free to attend. The goal there is to be really welcoming to new folks. And we work really hard to service new voices there. And and do you know when the next one may be? Yeah, it's usually in November. So you just missed one. And we are an all volunteer org. So probably in the next month, you're going to see all the videos. It takes us a long time just to transcode. How many people normally come? 
We serve, it's like about 300 people, maybe a little more, a little less. It's on a Friday and a Saturday and it's at a community college in downtown Seattle. So the first day is a little bit more like intro, like how to get started, you know, 10 things I wish I'd known when I started using Labor Office, those kinds of topics. And then Saturday is a little more like, what's the future of the free and open source software movement? Or like, how do you revitalize your ongoing community and stuff like that? So different people come on the two different days. Some folks can't get off work on Friday, but then we have like students kind of drop in like, what's this? It's free. Come in. So it's cozy. Where's Beagle? Like Boston GNU Linux (laughs) conference, right? Oh, so... Interestingly, there is already a free software conference in the Boston area because the Free Software Foundation is based here. And when I used to work there, like about, you know, 14 years ago, we used to have an annual members meeting. And I said, this should be a more front facing thing. So I moved us from going just people who are already part of the free software community to being like, this should be a big, wide open to the public kind of event. So that's called Libre Planet. That still happens every year. I'm not there anymore, so I don't have any insight on what's happening over there exactly. But there is already a Boston event. So I'm really excited that we have you on the podcast. You're the third OSI member that we have interviewed. And recently, Elastic wrote this really weirdly worded blog post about doubling down on open, where... Some say, and I agree, they're completely gaslighting the community of saying, hey, we're adopting the SSPL, the server-side public license, but we're still believe in open source. So what are your feelings on their kind of bait-and-switch tactic on Elastic, and how is the OSI addressing it? So we have a blog post, which I will go in the show notes, but we worked really hard to let people know what open source is and what open source means. And to have someone kind of like skate in at the end and say, now it means whatever we feel like saying it means that it is convenient for our, basically, we didn't really think our business model through. We decided we were going to do one thing and then whoops, because we didn't think it through, now we have to change. We have to change our covenant with the community and we have to still try and stuff it in this box and pretend it's open source. So I feel sorry for everyone who contributed to Elastic thinking that it was going to be an open source project, but also it does damage to the overall community because it muddies the waters on what open source actually is for folks. They're like, oh, I thought open source just meant whatever you feel like, or, you know, whatever it is, as long as you're sticking it to the man. No, it actually has a real specific definition. And when we say something is open source, you should expect to be able to use the source code in your own stuff for whatever you want. So, you know, of course, like you can't do illegal stuff, but that's not the open source definition that's covered somewhere else. On that note, I was wondering if there has been any direct conversation with somebody from Elastic in any sort of constructive way. Constructive is the key word. There's been a lot of conversation on Twitter and People don't necessarily always say what hat they're wearing when they're on Twitter. Like, oh, I'm just a concerned citizen who actually happens to be counsel at Elastic or something. Who knows? So, yeah, we always offer if you want to talk to us about this or if you want to like reach out or if you want to rework that license so that it is an open source license, like we always offer. I think once companies have put like several hours of PR and lawyer time, 
formulating a response without our input, they generally don't actually come back and ask us to help them redo it all. But we would if they wanted, or even better, if you're thinking of doing something like this right now, you could reach out before you spend lots of like billable hours and PR time going down this weird path that's misleading. So I know in the podcast that we had earlier with Patrick and Josh, I took a pretty hardline stance that open source doesn't have to conform to the OSD because the OSD is something that I didn't know about when I joined the open source communities that I'm in, which I think is a position of a lot of developers. It's certainly not a position of a lot of people who are in open source program offices, working for large companies, or who have been around longer than I have. I started coding as an open source developer in like 2011. And that's, well, 10 years now. Oh, God. But it's <laughs> certainly less than people like Denise Cooper, who founded the open source idea or one of the people involved with that. So what we're seeing is this interesting divide between people who are like, well, open source just means whatever I think it means as a community at large, stick it to the man. But then we're seeing large companies saying, well, open source means stick it to the man, but we're the man. So we're just going to make open source whatever we want it to mean. And I see a real difference between those two groups of people. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that as someone who is very clear that open source means OSD. So there's kind of two things there. There's what the community believes and there is what lawyers believe. And lawyers, they're a little different than we are in some ways. And this comes from the whole beginning of like free and open source software. Software developers writing licenses or like anyone writing legal licenses as a practitioner would have sounded super out there to anybody before free software did that. So it means that those licenses were written without a lot of the early ones without lawyers input and none of them have been tried in the courts. And so on the legal side, it's like, oh, well, that's what you want to have happen until we can whittle it down in the courts to something that our company finds more convenient or profitable. And so that, I think, is why some of those large companies are pushing back. But the thing about open source is that, sure, you can bludgeon something in the courts through like money and just like showing up and being irritating over and over again in front of a judge that doesn't know what's going on but you're not ever going to get the goodwill back from the community. I guess my message to companies that are like, well, you know, we're going to win this in the courts is, well, do you want to be the company that everybody's, well, they pay good, but you know, they're going to stick it to the open source community every time they can. So I guess decide that for yourself. Deb, I'd like to ask you kind of a counter question to this conversation regarding the doubling down on open. We've seen a lot of companies come through that have experienced the effect of Amazon, where they basically productize and sell an open source project. It seems like that is definitely one of the major reasons why Elastic went the direction that they did. That being the case, it seems like that decision was almost an existential requirement for them to continue. And so do they deserve the bad press and the negative feelings? When in fact, all they're doing is just trying to protect themselves and all of the families that they're paying for, you know, for meals every month. I'm sympathetic to that. And I know that people need jobs and you got to eat. We live in a capitalist society. I think if a large company can kind of eat your lunch, then you sort of owe it to the customers that you do have to differentiate yourself in some way. I get a whole newsletter about how irritating it is to use Amazon's cloud. There must be a few people out there that would prefer a more bespoke service for that. And so instead of playing out on the licensing, it's like, 
why don't you be great on the service or provide stuff for a niche kind of user that isn't being supported by this huge company? I feel like that's kind of like what free and open source software is really good at. Before that, if you wanted some kind of software, especially if you were working somewhere small, like I've worked at a lot of small nonprofits, and someone's like, here's this database. It's massive. Every single record had to have, you know, 80 fields filled in. And I'm like, we're taking $5 donations here. I have to fill in 80 fields to track a $5 donation or the IRS is going to come get us. So it's like, okay, so there is room for a lot of different niches in software. And I think it's disappointing to me that instead of playing to their strengths, they're like, well, we're going to instead alienate our developers and also kind of hip tech the open source community in the process. If you were running Elastic and you had to make this decision, how would you have approached it and how would you have marketed that decision? So clearly they made a decision intending to save and continue to build their business. It seems like the right for them to do so is, in my view, probably more important for them to do that versus retain a license that would allow Amazon to come in and steal their business. I think it's a very clear decision in my mind, but I'd like to know if that is so wrong, what is the right approach that they should have taken to uh, Uh, and how they would have handled that? Yeah, I think just saying, hey, we tried open source and it didn't work for our business model. Then the OSI would have had nothing to say. We'd have been like, well, that's a bummer. We like open source, but you know, we're not trying to require everybody to use it. It's when it's saying like, we chose a proprietary license, but we're going to pretend we're still open source. That's the part that's really not good for the OSI. The Elastic community still might have some complaints about that, but the OSI would be like, well, that's too bad. So the doubling down on open is, I used to work on legislation and it's one of those things where you're like, oh, it's the Children Protection Act when it actually like subjects children to like more surveillance or something. It's like that kind of double speak that is, I don't know, kind of just makes me really annoyed and angry. This is great, Deb. Circling back to your comment about lawyers, and I forget the actual terminology, but it seems like they aren't necessarily part of the history of the open source community. And I was wondering if you could speak more about where lawyers sit in the community now and what lawyers and people with legal expertise can do to be part of like open source creation and sustainability. Let me say, first of all, we've come a long way. I know a lot of excellent lawyers that are pretty good at doing open source stuff now, which was not always the case. A thing that's really interesting about lawyers is that they generally get trained by older lawyers. So it really took a long time to like kind of trickle down that, hey, there is a whole business model or a whole bunch of people or a whole bunch of folks making software in this way that relies on not doing copyright. And so lawyers have come out and they, you know, they've been taught like copyright started in the 1500s and there's like a apocryphal story about a monk trying to steal a book and, and making a copy of it in the middle of the night. And it's this whole thing. So there's like a lot of momentum, 1500s to just 30 years ago. So it's a real big shift to kind of go from, hey, if you do a business, you rely on copyright and these different intellectual property structures to protect your business, to we build the business and we build the community and we create value by sharing. And so that was a hard one for the legal community at first, but there are a lot of great resources now. People have a lot of conversations on a couple of different mailing lists. 
a license review and license discussed at OSI are there. The Southern California Linux Expo, which sadly is not running virtually this year, has for a number of years done like a CLE day, like a continuing legal education credit day on open source software specifically. It's really come around where it's like, oh, okay, so this is a new thing. And it's a thing that you have to approach a little bit differently, but we're going to help each other get there. And we're going to talk about best practices in the legal community on helping our clients do open source. And we've had Richard Fontana on this podcast as well, who was also, I think, in Cambridge and a really great guest from the legal side. You mentioned earlier that you did stuff in legislature before yeah. you ended up in open source. Could you talk a bit about that? So I worked at a nonprofit that was called Citizens for Participation in Political Action and had been around since the 60s. And we worked on passing legislation. Some of the stuff that we worked on while I was there was marriage equality. We had worked on raising the minimum wage in Massachusetts. We had worked on benefits for part-time and contingent workers. And we're also very much opposed to unilateral involvement by the U.S. in different countries all over the world. So it's a real mix of stuff, actually. And when that organization started, nobody was doing that kind of organizing. The organization no longer exists because now there are individual organizations working on each of those issues. So that's fantastic. But yeah, I've gone and lobbied on different things at the state house here in Massachusetts. It used to be like work travel was a commuter rail ticket to Lowell, which is like an hour from here. I sort of had a follow-up question because I was I'm interested in you know your journey and your path to OSI. When I look at all of these licenses, sometimes it's so confusing. It's hard to like navigate through. And I was wondering if you could speak to how did you find clarity around all of these licenses? Were you ever sort of confused about how to navigate it and how you would recommend others to understand the space of these, you know, so many licenses and nuances and ambiguities, if you can help people understand and, and navigate through them? It could seem like a little overwhelming at first, I think. They do kind of fall into a couple different categories. And I actually have given, like, I'm pretty close to MIT. I've gone over there a couple of times to talk to students about how to start looking at licenses and understanding them. And basically, like, you have two things. You have a whole big category of licenses, like several different categories of licenses. And you have what your personal goal is. So if you're writing software for your boss, then you don't put it under a license that your boss is not okay with. This seems obvious. It's good to say to undergrads, I think, just in case. But it's like in the same way, if you're trying to write a patch for like some Perl code, it should go under the Perl artistic license. It shouldn't be like in a weird, like incompatible or hostile license. And then you get into like, okay, so what if you're not directly patching, but you're writing something like a module or a library that goes with certain code? You want to make sure that the platform that you hope this will work with, that you aren't putting it under a license that precludes them working together. And then finally, if you're writing it for yourself from scratch and it's standalone, then just pick the license that aligns with your values and your goals for the code. So that's kind of how I help people like sort of sort through how many decisions do you have to make? If you're writing code for work, you probably have almost no decisions to make. If you're writing it for yourself, for personal use, for fun, for standalone, the whole pile of licenses is kind of available to you. But then you can look at what licenses are there. Like a big one is like permissive versus copyleft. Another important distinction, I think, especially depending on what field you're in, 
is it a modern license with a patent clause or is it an older license that doesn't have a patent clause? And the patent clause is pretty important because you don't want folks coming, looking at your code, taking it, patenting the use case in there, and then coming back and suing you for implementing your own code. So modern licenses have patent clauses. And there are a lot of different ones. I actually gave a whole talk about all the different patent clauses and licenses. I find that there is a lot of confusion around the legal language, and I think it is helpful to lay them all out for folks in the abstract so that when they have a decision to make, they have some grounding in what's available. There is a lot of confusion. I totally agree with you on that. And that's one of the jobs of the open source initiative is helping to figure out how to make it more clear to people what open source is and what licenses are and which licenses are, are good and which ones are elastics. So Deb, can you tell us a bit about how you ended up as a general manager at the OSI and what you're doing there? Yeah, so I've worked at a couple of different places in free and open source software. I started at the FSF and then I did some volunteer stuff for a while and you do eventually have to find something that's not volunteer. So I worked at the Open Invention Network, which is a defensive patent pool for the Linux system. And then I worked at Conservancy for a little bit. And I had been thinking for a little while about running my own organization. So when I found out that they were looking for someone to run the OSI for a little while, I said, oh, that would be like a great place to kind of start and see how it is to run the whole place again. And so, yeah, so some of the stuff that we're working on, it's a big growth here at the OSI. So we've been doing some strategic planning, some looking at some of our old systems and being like, oh, do we still need this? Do we still use this? Is this still the best tool? So some of that stuff and really kind of trying to look ahead to what the say next 10 years of open source looks like and how the OSI can really support that ecosystem. I guess I should admit I'm kind of biased and why I asked that question, seeing as how I currently work for the OSI as a fundraiser, for those of you who don't know our listeners. So thank you, Deb, for summarizing what we do there so well. One of the things that you mentioned to us, and yes, we do this beforehand in our document, what do you want to talk about? You mentioned talking about being kind to people and being a good manager in a capitalist system and making sure people have time off and all these excellent processes that actually help build community that's meaningful as opposed to just let's move forward. This is the wrong license. This is the wrong license. Why didn't you email me back? Can you talk a bit about why this topic is important to you and what particularly you wanted to focus on? Yeah. So like I said, I've done a lot of nonprofit work before CP Packs. I worked at Perg and I worked at a couple of other places. And I've noticed this thing that happens with mission-based work, like people get a little, you know, we can never do enough. And then folks burn out and they're like, I just work at an advertising agency now, which is like fine, but it's also, oh, maybe there are a lot of nonprofits that could have used a little bit better advertising out there, let me tell you. And so I have seen this happen a lot of places, especially in mission-based work, people just push themselves and they push each other. They're like, oh, I mean, you know, if you don't care about the environment, like you can go home, but I'm going to stay till 10 p.m. And it's like, oh, it's so gross and so bad. It also means that when you go out and you talk to people about your mission, you sound like a person that hasn't had a conversation with someone about anything other than your work for five years because you kind of haven't. And it means that you're not able to talk to people where they're at. So you're speaking about washing saran wrap and they're like, I have no idea what you're on about. I'm not going to start washing saran wrap. And so, and that's just an example. I don't know if you're supposed to wash saran wrap. I guess we're not supposed to buy saran wrap anymore. But it's critical if you're doing mission-based work 
that you are thinking about how to bring more people into that mission. And that means you have to have perspective. This is how you end up with like juice rose stuff. You invented Capri Sun, but with a really fancy machine. That's weird. That comes from a lack of perspective. And it's the same when you're trying to do mission-based work. You're asking people to do things and they're like, I don't know what planet you're on, but I don't get to tell my boss what kind of laptop to purchase for me, like as an entry-level person. So like this idea that you think I can affect that decision is weird. There might be other decisions I could affect, but like you end up sounding really out of touch and it's not good for your organization for promoting your mission if you never have perspective. Unfortunately, Deb, you're one of our guests, and this happens occasionally with our guests, who are so eloquent that I can't even imagine a question because you just wrapped everything up in such a nice bow that it's just like, yes, that's exactly the problem. That's a really good point. I totally agree. We should all have more time off. So I just yes. want to say thank you so much for that. Take a vacation. Never forget. Yeah. Even if it's a staycation because, you know, pandemic. But I have a question. My brother is a lawyer in the crypto space. And I'm wondering how OSI has been approaching and works with the new developments of Web3, particularly as they create like a whole new open source ecosystem. Well, we are always looking at what's going on in the technology space. So we don't draft licenses. That's a thing that we don't do. But we do look at new licenses. And last year, we approved the cryptographic autonomous license. So That one is a special use license that is looking at protecting user data, but also making the code available. And we'll have an article up about that pretty soon. But when there is something new happening out there and people are like, oh, there is an actual new thing that we need licensing for, like open source licensing. And we work with folks and we help them make sure that it's readable, there's no typos, that there's no redundancies, that it's a clear, understandable license that is easy to apply and easy to use. And that was the process with the cryptographic autonomous license. And so that was a a big one that we approved last year. So I guess we don't have plans for other cryptographic licenses, but that process was really interesting for us. And so if someone came up with another use case that wasn't covered, that needed a new open source license, we'd certainly look at it. The cryptographic autonomous license is fascinating and super cool because we're going to see a lot more things like that, I think, in the future as Web3 becomes a much more developed space and as we move on into Web4, Web5, Web Infinity in the future. Going along with the OSI, though, as being a responsive organization, I'm curious what your thoughts are on setting best practices for open source in general, not just licensing. And particularly when you think about, say, other countries, which may be further along in their open source. You know, the EC just released a report, internal report, but a report last week that says we want 20 open source program offices across Europe. That's miles ahead of Biden's administration so far. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's so fascinating because adoption is ahead in a lot of places. Like you said, almost like they've been working on it for 20 years and we've been, I don't know, having people print out emails for legislators for 20 years. and so. I'm not sure what role the OSI would play. I think that we have a slight difference in the way that you're allowed to approach things in the US in such that if you want to lobby and push for legislation, you have to be designated what's called a 501c4 organization. And we're 501c3. So we're a charitable organization. Our role in that would probably be more to provide information and 
resources, like here are great repositories of municipal software, or here are some examples of places that people are implementing open source, like in schools. If there was to be a lobbying push, it would probably have to be another organization. It might be one that we talk with. I mean, the open source community is only so big, so we would probably know who they were. We do all tend to know each other. I do unfortunately have to start wrapping up. Before I do so, Deb, where can people follow you and your amazing thoughts in general? Do you have a Twitter account? Do you have a website? Yeah, mostly it's on Twitter is at Bacon and Coconut. I joined Twitter a little late because I wanted to do the free software maker blog for a while. So there was nothing related to my name left. So now I'm Bacon and Coconut. I love that. That's really great. Thank you. That's Bacon, bacon, bacon and Coconut. and Coconut. Bacon and is Coconut. That good? Excellent. It's great on pizza. <laughs> wow. You can actually make like a vegan bacon from coconut. Speaking of pizza, that brings us back to seagulls. Seagulls love pizza. And seagulls was going to be something wow. that we're going to do in Spotlight. And Spotlight is now where we are in this show. So this is the part of the show, everyone, if you're not familiar, where we try to shed some light on dependencies that have needed love or people who have helped us out in our career or just maintainers at large. Since we've had Caitlin Taney on this podcast, I've had full permission from her to say spotlight instead of spotlight. So I've been doing that. And Deb, I hope you also agree coming from the Boston area as you do. Hmm. So Alyssa Wright, what is your spotlight today? My spotlight is a launch of Fund OSS. Everybody should head over to fundoss.org. It's a matching program that we're launching with Open Source Collective and Gitcoin that we'll have in March. And so donations are based on not a one-to-one match, but rather a crowdsource sort of voting match. It's called quadratic funding. And this will be in March. We really encourage collectives to sign up so that donations during this time will be again, multiplied and matched. And for people that are interested in contributing to the general fund, Right now we have, we're working with a $75,000 match and looking to, you know, increase that to support open source projects. So head over to fundoss.org, email us if you have any questions. It's an experiment that we hope to be able to continue and refine each quarter. Also, take a look at the former episode where we published about Fund OSS. That will happen oh, yeah. <laughs> by the time this comes out. Eric, what is your spotlight? Other than a seagull video, which is phenomenal, and it's linked in the show notes. And if you don't know it, then you probably don't exist yet. The other thing that I would like to pick today, and it's something that I've been using quite a lot. I've reset my mind every morning where I go through a rotation of first meditation. And then I do this thing. I perform an exorcism, not like what you're thinking. So if you go to exorcism.io, E-X-E-R-C-I-S-M.io, What it is, is a tool that will allow you to basically check out a simple challenge, a programming challenge, and they give you an empty file and a failing test. And what your goal is to write up code that will make those tests pass in the most efficient and proper way. And so it's a really great way in the morning to kind of get your brain working. I found it's very helpful for me as we kind of get comfortable in our programming languages. It's good to stay sharp. Also, a big shout out to Katrina Owen, who created this back in 2013. It says a lot about what she has done, considering how large it is now. It's just absolutely huge. Thank you very much. Justin Dorfman? So in the beginning, I said Google Seagull Onion. So Seagull is S-E-A-G-U-L-L, not Steven Seagal. Just, Just do that. Okay. 
But my spotlight today is Katakoto, which is an interactive learning and training platform that we're using at CuriFence. Allows you to spin up Docker containers in your browser. And it's really great for teaching people how to set up things without having to go Docker compose on their own local environment. It's an O'Reilly product, really, really great. And they uh, have a lot of lessons that you can learn from cloud native or open source projects. So check out Katakoda with a K-A-T-A-C-O-D-A.com. Excellent. Thank you. My spotlight is Waffle.js. Waffle.js is a meetup I've actually never been to, but I'm just so glad that it exists in the world. There are people who think that coding is fun when you have it with waffles. So that's it. That's all I needed to say. It exists in the world. Deb, what's your spotlight? I think the thing I'm most excited about, my friend Christopher Lumber Weber is working on this project called Sprightly. And it's a continuation of the web decentralization stuff. He's going back and using a lot of tools we abandoned as we built these giant centralized tools. And so it's to empower people to like build their own like virtual worlds, build their own environments, build their own like learning tools and things like that. So I'm really excited to see how that plays out and start to see it out in the wild as it gets a little bit more ready for folks to test drive. And of course, the unnamed spotlights from Deb are the OSI and Seagull. Thank you so much. It's been awesome to have you here on this podcast. This was a really enjoyable discussion. And it also included bacon and coconuts and just seagulls. So I, I'm just incredibly happy that you were here. To all of our listeners, thank you. Looking forward to catching you next week. Thanks all. <laughs>